Uh, the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is all about the gospel. The gospel of God uh, is the uh, theme that we're looking at. And uh, we're going to continue to learn about how the gospel works in our lives. Uh, and that's uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. <clears throat> now, this is a very deep section in Romans. Uh, the theology, uh, it's like going from, um, you know, if you think of a, an ocean, you know, you start out shallow, but then you get into very, very deep water. Uh, Romans 6 is very deep water. Uh, however, it is extremely practical. Okay, this, this is really, uh, you know, life-changing. And so we need to get into the deep water and to understand it uh, because it will actually um, completely change our lives. So uh, let's, let's read uh, Romans 6 verses 1 to 14 and then we'll pray um, asking for God's help to understand it. Okay, Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit to uh, teach us, uh, to enlighten our minds so that we understand this, uh, this deep section of your word. And Lord, we, we want uh, to be changed as a result because we know that your word uh, is powerful, that it can change us uh, deep within, that it can renew us and make us more like your son. And so we want to, we know, we want to know him more. Father, we, we pray that this passage, that it would lead us to Christ, that our faith would be anchored in him, and that out of that would flow the, the change uh, that comes through the gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, I want to begin with a question today. A question that goes like this. I wonder if you've ever thought to yourself, it doesn't matter if I give in to this sin because I can just ask for forgiveness later on. Have you ever thought that? Or to put it another way, uh, maybe it doesn't matter if I give in to this temptation because, well, God's grace is so great that it'll, it'll cover it all anyway. Have you ever thought that in your life? See, that's actually the question that this passage begins with. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, can we just sin all we like and then, you know, God will forgive anyway, so it doesn't matter? Is that, is that how it works? Now, the reason the passage starts with that question is because up until now, Paul has been explaining the gospel, and the gospel is uh, that those who believe in Christ are justified, and justified, as we've been learning, means to be declared righteous in Christ. It means that when God justifies you, he treats you as if Jesus' perfect obedience is your perfect obedience. And so in God's sight, you are perfect through faith in Jesus. Uh, That means you always have God's approval, regardless of how many failings are in your life. God always looks at you with approval. And none of our works adds anything to our standing with God It's all based on Christ's work alone. That's the good news of salvation by grace. But Paul knows that some people will hear that and think, great, that means I can just live any way I like and God will always forgive me. It means I can just continue on unchanged and everything's fine. Uh, Paul knows that some people will, will even be saying, hang on, if the gospel says that God saves us and our works add nothing to it, then hang on, you've taken away any incentive to change. You've actually taken away the incentive to live a godly life. So the question is, does the gospel encourage sin? That's what Paul's dealing with here. In fact, in the last passage, if you look back to chapter 5, verse 21, uh, he he actually said, uh, sorry, verse, uh, which one is it? 20, I think. Uh, yes, verse 20, where the law came uh, to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's saying that no matter how much sin you see in your life as a believer, God's grace is always greater. Okay, there is always forgiveness. And Paul knows that some readers will go, that just sounds like we can sin all we like and there will always be more grace so that it actually doesn't matter if we sin. So that's the question that Paul deals with. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And it's a very extremely important question for us to think about, not just because it's a theological conundrum, but the reason we need to think about it is because this is so practical. This is about daily living. You know, can the gospel actually change our lives? You know, it's wonderful to be saved from the penalty of sin, but what about the power of sin? What about the struggle of sin? Or maybe you've asked the question, if Jesus has saved me from my sin, well then why do I keep on sinning so much? You know, can the gospel actually change us? What if you're stuck in some sin 
and it feels like that sin is going to destroy you. Does the gospel help? Okay, does what Jesus has done, does it make a difference? Does it get us unstuck? Or does it just leave us to live however we like? And so the answer is in this passage, and the answer it really comes down to one thing, one thing that Paul says over and over in this passage, and that is if you are a believer in Jesus, you have died to sin. See, that's the key statement. If you belong to Christ, you have died to sin. Died to sin. What does it mean? How did it happen? What difference does it make? That's actually the three um, things that Paul deals with. What does it mean to die to sin? How did it happen? What difference does it make? Let's have a look at those three things. So first, what does it mean? Uh, Paul says in verse 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we, who, here it is, died to sin, how can we still live in it? So he asks that rhetorical question. Uh, He's saying that if you have died to sin, then you won't just keep living in it. Okay, You, you you will change. But what does it actually mean to die to sin? We who have died to sin. What does that mean? Well, let me start by telling you what it doesn't mean, because it's important to see what it doesn't mean. Died to sin does not mean, here are four things it can't mean, it doesn't mean that if you're a Christian that you're no longer tempted by sin. It has been taught that in some schools in the past, uh, they, they taught that Uh, Died to sin now means you're completely unresponsive to it. It's like a corpse. If you have a corpse and you poke the corpse with a stick, uh, the corpse is unresponsive. And so the thinking was that uh, we're like that now. Sin can poke us as much as it likes. It can tempt us. But because we've died to sin, it doesn't affect us anymore. In other words, we're not tempted. It can't mean that, though. Died to sin can't mean we're no longer tempted because otherwise Paul wouldn't have to write verses 12 and 13, uh, which we'll look at later. Uh, and, and Paul is actually going to talk about his own struggle with sin. You know, his experience of temptation when we get to um, chapter 7. And so died to sin, it can't mean that we're no longer tempted by sin. Here's another thing died to sin can't mean. It can't mean that Christians no longer sin. Oddly enough, there have been uh, various people throughout the um, centuries who have taught that Christians can reach a state of perfection in this life. It's called sinless perfection. And apparently um, Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous um, Baptist preacher in the 19th century, uh, he met someone at a, at a uh, function who, who claimed that he had reached a state of sinless perfection. And so Charles Spurgeon went over and picked up a um, big jug of cold water and he went up to this man and he poured it over the man's head. And, um, you know, the man responded in a tirade of abuse and uh, cursing and Spurgeon said something like, oh, it seems as if your sin wasn't dead after all but asleep and I've revived it with some um, cold water. See, died to sin, it can't mean that Christians don't sin anymore. 
Uh, a third thing it can't mean, it can't be saying, it can't be talking about a gradual process, uh, a gradual process of, of putting sin to death. Now, Paul does talk about that in chapter 8, where he says we have to put the misdeeds of the body to death. But here, it's actually talking about something that's happened already, something that's already done, already completed. So it's not talking about a gradual process. And one last thing it's not talking about, and that is it's not talking about something you aspire to. This is not a command. It's not saying you have to be dead to sin. This is not something you do. It's something that's done for you, something that's done <clears throat> for every single believer. Every Christian, whether you're a brand new Christian or a Christian who's been one for for decades, and everyone in between, every single believer has died to sin. Okay, so now we know what it doesn't mean. What does it mean then? In what sense have we died to sin? And the answer is it's talking about the enslavement of sin. Okay, a Christian is no longer enslaved to sin. Or to put it another way, a Christian has been freed from the reign of sin. The reign of sin. And you see that from the context. If you look at um, chapter 5, verse 21, it talked about sin reigning in death. So when we were in Adam, you know, we talked about that last week, the old life, when we were united to Adam, sin reigned. Okay, it was like a, a power that, that had complete control. Uh, sin reigned in death. And, and to reign, you know, we talk about kings reigning. And when a king reigns, uh, that means they have all the authority, they have all the power, all the control. If you're in a kingdom where a king reigns, you don't have freedom to choose how you want to live. You have to obey the king. You have to go along with his will. Uh, you don't have the freedom to go against them. And see, that's how sin functioned in our lives when we were in Adam, when we were unconverted. Sin reigned. We didn't have the freedom to go against it. Uh, sin was a ruling power. But now this is saying that you have died to sin. That means sin's ruling power has been killed for you. Sin's authority over you is now dead. And we'll see this more clearly when we get down to verse 6, um, because verse 6 says that the old self was crucified uh, with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we're no longer enslaved. Uh, we're no longer stuck under sin's control. So sin has lost that controlling power over you now. And so one way to think about it, here's an illustration that might um, help uh, understand this a bit better. Imagine a huge prison complex. And imagine that you are in this huge prison complex uh, and you're under the control of a mean prison warden whose name is Sin. And so this prison warden named Sin, he's an absolute tyrant, Ultimately, he wants nothing more or nothing less, really, than to kill you. Uh, but inside those prison walls, under that control of the warden, you can do nothing about that. 
You can't escape his power or his authority. Now, sometimes you don't mind. Sometimes it all just feels normal. After all, you were born in that prison uh, under that control of the uh, warden. But sometimes that warden makes your life miserable. And when that happens, you try to resist. You try to break free. But no matter how hard you try, you just can't do anything about it. Uh, you've tried every four-step plan or every five-step plan to break free uh, from uh, sin's control. And every time when you think you've finally gotten away, when you think you're free, there's the warden waiting for you to drag you back to your cell. See, that's a picture of life in Adam. That's a picture of, of someone unconverted. Can't break free. Can't get away from sin's power. That's someone under sin's rule. But this is what happens. When Christ saves you, it's as if he storms the prison compound, sets you free, so you're now no longer under the warden's control. The warden can no longer force you to do anything. You're set free from his authority. But guess what happens? The warden still tries to get at you. He still tries to get you to conform. Uh, it's like he follows you everywhere and continues to try to harass you, tries to get you to give in. Uh, he, he, he's always present in our lives. But here's the thing, he has no authority. He has no right to push you around anymore. He has no right to get you to do what he wants. Uh, we now have the ability to say, get lost, sin. I don't have to do what you say anymore. See, and that's a picture of what it's like to be someone who has died to sin. Okay, you're free from that, that control, that, uh, the, the, the controlling power of sin. And so we who died to sin, it's talking about all believers, all who belong to Jesus have died to the reign of sin. Sin is still present, still tries to exercise control. So that means we, we can still sin. We're still tempted from within, but you don't have to give in because you've actually been set free. You have died to sin. So that's what died to sin means. And see, this is Paul's answer to the one who says that being saved by grace and not works uh, you know, that that somehow promotes sin. You know, you can live any way you like and still go to heaven. But Paul says, no way. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Why would we want to keep going in something that is enslaving and miserable? And so it's like Paul saying that, you know, if you think the gospel encourages sin, you have not understood the gospel. Not only does the gospel not encourage sin, but the gospel is the only way to actually be truly free. It's the only way to break free of sin's control. Only through the gospel. So that's the first thing. Christians are those who have died to sin, no longer under its reign. Now, how did that happen? How did it happen? And we really need to know how, because this is the key to living the Christian life. So we need to be convinced that it's true. You need to be convinced that you have died to sin, which means you need to know how it happened. Because when you know how it happened, then you will be convinced that it's true. 
And Paul tells us how it happened in verses 3 to 10. So we'll look at those verses now. Uh, Paul begins by appealing to baptism. Uh, Have a look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, the reason Paul brings up baptism here is because baptism is a sign of something. Okay, Baptism is not just a thing in itself. It points to something. It points to a, a wonderful spiritual reality that is true of every Christian. And do you know what it is? It's that you are united to Christ. Baptism is a picture of being united to Christ. And you see that when you read on to the next verse, verse 5, where Paul, uh, he replaces the word baptism with united, but he, he says virtually the same thing. He says, if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So baptism points to being united to Christ. What does it mean to be united to Christ? It means that you are joined to him in such a way that everything that's true about Jesus now becomes true of you. Uh, This is a spiritual union where you are in Christ and Christ is in you. That's what it means to be united to Christ. And the Bible talks about this over and over again. Okay, if you take out a highlighter and highlight in your Bible every time it says in Christ, which is a shorthand for union with Christ, um, your Bible will look very colourful. Uh, it's actually a good thing to do in Christ because it's such an important thing to be united to Christ. And, and the Bible uses so many really helpful illustrations to teach us what it means. So, for example, Christ is the vine. We are the branches. Or Christ is the head, we are the body. Christ is the uh, foundation, we are the, the, yeah, the structure or the building. Uh, or even the temple uh, in 1 Peter. But you know, maybe the most helpful illustration for union with Christ is that of marriage. Because it says that Christ is the groom and his church is the bride. And that's a very helpful way of thinking about union with Christ because in a marriage, you know, you have a husband and a wife who are joined together in this deep union so that, that uh, you know, what, what is his is now hers and what is hers is now his. They're essentially one. And so, for example, if the husband uh, comes into the marriage with a huge financial debt, then um, that now becomes his wife's debt as well. Alternatively, if the husband or the, the groom was extremely wealthy and his bride-to-be was in poverty, the moment she is united to him in marriage, then all that is his becomes hers. And see, that's, that's a good way of starting to think about union with Christ, that we're joined with him so that everything that's Jesus becomes ours. Everything that was ours becomes Jesus. But that's just a start. Because to be united to Christ, it's far deeper It doesn't just mean that Jesus' belongings become ours. It actually means everything. His life, his achievements, his perfect record of righteousness, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, 
Okay, when you're united to Christ, all of that becomes yours. Now, God considers that you have done all those things because we were united into his death. We were buried with him. See, and, and that is how we died to sin. When did we die to sin? We died on the cross with Christ in our union with him. And therefore, Paul, uh, he unpacks that in verses 6 to 10 to show how having died with Christ on the cross, that now frees us from sin, from sin's reign. So verse 6, he says, we know that our old self, you know, our old life in Adam uh, was crucified uh, with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the body of sin, that's talking about our physical bodies as they used to be under the reign of sin. See, sin, sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. How, how does sin happen? It expresses itself through our bodies. You know, sin comes out of our heart, but it expresses ourselves through our words, uh, through our, our hands, feet, eyes, minds, wills, emotions. In, in one sense, when we were under the reign of sin, our body was like the sin's playground. Now it could do whatever it likes. It was a body of sin. But because our old self died with Christ on the cross, our body is no longer under the reign of sin, and therefore we're no longer enslaved. Uh, verse 7 goes on to say, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. No, death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. That is our sin. Uh, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So let me just sum up what this is saying. This is saying that there was an old you. And that old you died on the cross with Christ. That old you was buried with Christ. But then a new you rose with Christ, rose from the dead. And this new you has been freed from sin's reign. This new you has risen to a new life, which is life lived to God. Okay, you have the freedom to live to God. And so if you belong to Christ, this is who you are. You are someone who has died to sin, someone who has risen to a new life. This is who God says you are. That means it is true. It means that it's true even on those days when you feel defeated by sin, even on those days where you've given in to temptation for the, you know, the hundredth time or the thousandth time. Uh, this doesn't change the fact that if you are in Christ, you have died to sin. Okay, yes, sin is still present, but it's not the boss anymore. Its authority to control you has been killed at the cross. And so as a believer, whenever you sin now, do you realize you're actually doing something that doesn't fit who you are? You're not being true to yourself. Okay, that's pretty modern language, isn't it? Be, be who you are. 
Well, this is who you are in Christ. You're dead to sin. So every time you go along with sin now, you're actually not being true to yourself. You're not living out your identity. You've actually forgotten that Christ has set you free from that. That you don't have to give in anymore. You've been free, set free. That's why Paul has started this, this passage by saying, how can we who died to sin still live in it? See, believers are those who have died to sin. How did that happen? We died on the cross with Christ. So we've been set free from sin's reign. Now the third thing though, what difference does that make? Or to put it another way, how do, how do we actually practice this? How do we experience what it's like to be someone who has died to sin? And Paul outlines how to experience it in verses 11 to 14. And uh, there, there's really two parts to it. Uh, the first one has to do with our thinking. Uh, look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So that word consider, it's, you know, we've got to do some thinking here. We've got to embrace this new way of thinking about ourselves. Because if we are people who have died with Christ to sin, we've got to start thinking like that, believing that's true, actually embracing it in practice. In fact, this is probably where the battle with sin is either won or lost, whether we embrace this or not. Now, for instance, uh, maybe some of you here are thinking, you know, it's all very well to be told that I'm free from sin, but what about on those days when I don't feel like it? Or, or what if you are someone here who, who feels like you're stuck in some sin? You know, something that you're even too ashamed to tell anyone else about. You know, and you feel defeated. You know, some of you might still feel enslaved sometimes. And, uh, and so what happens is when you think about that temptation that feels like it always beats you, you look at that temptation and you tell yourself, I can't beat this. What is the way out? What is the way of change? Do you know what it is? It's actually taking verse 11 and putting it into practice. And verse 11 is just saying, you need to start thinking, I am someone who has died to sin. I don't have to give in to it anymore. Okay, despite how hard it is, despite my many failings in the past, I have died to that thing, so I don't actually have to give in. Verse 11 is just about telling yourself the truth, telling yourself, I have been set free. I don't have to obey sin's voice. So that's the first part. But the second part, not only do we need to think about ourselves in a new way, but we need to practice living out this new life, you know, living true to who we are in Christ. And that's why verse 12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, of course, Paul wouldn't have to write that if, if Christians didn't have to fight against sin. But we do have to fight. The good news is we always fight now with the upper hand. Okay, we're not fighting aimlessly. We're not fighting as people who are just, you know, you're going to be defeated, so you might as well give up anyway. No, no, we have the upper hand. We've died to sin, so we can't actually fight. And re remember, sin is like that prison warden who even though you're outside of the prison and he has no authority, he's still trying to bug you and, 
and, and trying to say, come on, just, just give in. Just go along. Remember the good old times? Don't let sin do that to you. Don't be pushed around anymore. You don't have to. You've actually been set free from that. And so when the desire to give in to temptation arises from within, and it will, you need to push back against that. Or, here's another one, run away from it. Fight it. Get out of the situation that's causing the temptation. But fight it off with this truth of who you are in Christ. That's where the power is. The power is Christ himself and in your union with him. And that's one side of the fight because the other side of the fight uh, is laid out there in verse 13, which says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So living out who you are in Christ, it's not just about resisting sin. And if we only focus on resisting sin, then we'll actually, uh, we, won't, we won't enjoy the full freedom that Christ has actually bought for us. And the full freedom is to live for God. The full freedom is actually to have this lifestyle of enjoyment of God. You know, living his way. Actually replacing sinful practices with living righteously. That's the real freedom. And I wonder if you here have found that freedom. The freedom of actually knowing God and enjoying him, enjoying living with him and living for him. That's what Christ has saved us for. And so let's just finish with a a brief action plan. Let's just make it for this week coming up. Here's the action plan for this week. Think about one or two sins that you do often let dominate you and take, even write them down. And this week we're all going to spend time praying about those, those sins. But we're going to pray like this. Lord, I know that you have set me free from that because I have died to sin. Therefore, help me to live that out. Help me to be who I am in Christ. Okay, do that every day. And go forward in the freedom that Christ has won for you. See, are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, the gospel is where freedom is. It's in Christ. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, passage, uh, though, though it is deep and might be hard to understand um, union with Christ, but we praise you, Father, that it, that it is true that even where our own understanding can't fully comprehend it, uh, but it is true because you say it's true. And Lord, we thank you that we can have confidence that Christ has not only set us free from the penalty of sin, but even from its power so that we can now live a godly life. We thank you for that. We thank you for it's not just the life of of, uh, just keeping a law as if that's some abstract thing, but we thank you that it's about relationship with you, about knowing you and about enjoying you, about knowing the the wonderful joy of, of living in holiness and living in purity and not living in the the dirt 
of uh, immorality. Uh, so, Father, we pray that each of us here would take hold of this and where we have allowed ourselves to be um, beaten by uh, sin's temptations, Lord, we pray that uh, each of us would take hold of this gospel reality of being united to Christ and of, being, and of having God to sin uh, so that we can experience this freedom in practice. And we pray that we would all uh, do that uh, by your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.